Hello, welcome to Lambdaforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I'm the songwriter in the band Lambdaforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I am joined by drummer Emmett Seglia. You may remember Emmett from the very first episode of Lambdaforms Radio, when I interviewed him about his band Detach the Islands. Because that interview was primarily focused on his latest record at the time, the episode didn't end up covering much of the biographical info that this podcast has grown to cover since. So today's conversation with Emmett is meant to rectify that. I was delighted to have him back on to talk about growing up on Long Island, picking up the drums after leaving sports behind, studying music at Berklee College of Music, and becoming a session drummer and engineer after college. Finally, we take a digression into the subject of my other podcast, the Human Instrumentality Podcast, to talk about the TV show Neon Genesis Evangelion. But before we get to the interview, I'd like to mention that I have put out a new album recently called You Can't Do This Alone. It's a remix album that features a wide range of electronic and experimental reinterpretations of songs from my previous record, Sisyphean. You can grab the album now on my Bandcamp, which I've included in the show notes. Now, on to my interview with Emmett. So, oh man, it's funny, I've been thinking about like how long it's been since like our last episode together, you know? Like that was like the very first Lambdaforms radio. Yeah, man, that was what, two years ago? Practically, yeah, like September of 2019. It was actually the summer, and then it like, came out way later because I was totally dragging my heels back then. <laughs> uh, but like with a lot of the guests that I've had on, you know, I've been thinking about it in both ways because like that was during a very different period of the podcast where I had a very structured idea of how I wanted to do it with every single guest of like track by track through records. And pretty quickly I realized oh no, this isn't going to work. <laughs> oh no, what what kind of changed for you? Like how did the how did that format go out of fashion? Because it felt good to be able to dissect everything. Uh, it did feel good. I feel like it was dependent on like the type of music I was talking about. I ended up kind of starting to interview a lot more people that were doing ambient music and noise or had like multiple records coming out at the same time. Now I have to go track by track through each of the like five EPs that you've put out this year or, you know, starting to have bigger guests on. And it just became this kind of thing where it's like, I will definitely still take notes on individual songs. And I feel like if the moment is right, I would do it again. But I think it also helps to just have like a bit more of an open format because that way the guest can all kind of take you to where the interview needs to go rather than me being like, all right, on to the next track. And like, <laughs> right. We're constantly re-steering the ship on course. Exactly. So like last time we had all these great asides and changes of the course of, of conversation. And I feel like we could have just pursued that as far as it could have gone instead of trying to like tie it all back to the record. But we could have been humans. <laughs> we could have done it. <laughs> but so it's funny, I've, I'm thinking about that and like thinking about how there's a lot of your past before Detach the Islands that I don't think really made it into the podcast. But then there's also the two years since we had that conversation that, of course, is not inside of that podcast. So I guess like the question is, do you want to start by catching up to the present or do you want to jump back in time and get our way to 2021 chronologically? Oh, we love a flashback. 
We love a flashback. All right. So you want to start from the top? A time skip is always a risky writing maneuver. Flashback always has your back. So I guess since anyone who's listened to this podcast literally from the beginning knows you as a drummer, probably primarily, a good place to start is how did you start playing drums? Yeah. Wow. Where did it all begin? (laughs) Uh, It all started one fateful day. No, I was about five years old and I went to my dad, who's also a drummer, and said, I want to play guitar. And he just looked right at me and said, no. (laughs) (laughs) Just my wistful, aspiring eyes shut down. Nothing. He said, you have to learn how to play piano and read music first. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, whatever gets me to play guitar, dad. (laughs) If that's what I have to do, then that's what I have to do. So then I started playing piano from six to nine, hating it and uh, not really understanding why I was there or what I was supposed to be doing with all this information. But I learned how to read, sure learned how to do that, and then promptly forgot how to read notes and could only read rhythm. (laughs) But so I learned to read and everything, and that's great. And then as basically as soon as I could quit piano, I did and moved to the drums, which were just the next available thing. It wasn't even necessarily that I had this burning passion for drums or this deep known talent or anything like that. It was just the drums are near. Mm -hmm. I'm going. So I started playing in grade school band. And then since I could read, I immediately went from the beginner band to the advanced band, which meant me, the third grader, was playing with the eighth graders. (laughs) Wow. Holy shit. Which, you know, eighth grade is still not that old, but the difference between someone who is eight and someone who is 14 is like a lifetime, Mm -hmm. almost literally a lifetime of difference. And then from there, it just kind of snowballed into NISMA competitions and as many bands as I could get my hands on in school and all this county-wide Long Island all-star orchestral bands that I was in. It was all orchestra, symphonic music, snare, etudes, stuff like that. No jazz band, nothing band, quote-unquote, oriented. Interesting. Yeah, I I kind of have like theories about none of which are substantiated and always kind of fail once I start bringing them into the real world about like (laughs) (laughs) everything I think is a lie. (laughs) You know, like it's interesting seeing like who's playing comes from which branches of how they got into playing drums. Yeah. You can immediately tell like, oh, this person definitely has some like marching band experience because of how tight their rudiments are and hand technique and stuff like that. Or, oh, this person's phrasing is really interesting and out there. They must have some like jazz experience somewhere, like especially if they're playing with a lot of dynamics or, you know, oh, my God, that Phil just like took my head off and threw it out the window. This person must have played in church, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) It's true, though. You you can kind of follow a breadcrumb trail of the chops Mm -hmm. you know i always watch out for the double strokes ah yeah yeah yeah. double strokes are like the indicator of did you do marching band Mm -hmm. because if the double strokes are the same as the single strokes then yeah you probably did drumline and yeah if the linear fill takes four measures and (laughs) your right hand does a double stroke at the end and then you do a left hand crash when it would be way easier to just do a right hand crash probably from gospel (laughs) yes indeed (laughs) um so i this is some new information to me uh your dad was a drummer as well that's right 
uh, professionally or just as like a, a hobby weekend warrior kind of thing? Somewhere between weekend warrior and professional. Mm-hmm. So semi-professional? Semi-pro. Uh-huh. Yeah. Pro in the sense making money at it. Semi in that there was no records or tours, things like that. So like local gigging musician kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And usually the money went just back into acquiring more gear. Tale as old as time. Yeah, right? It's just like, I am on the gig so that I can get better gear for the next gig. (laughs) (laughs) Or just more gear to ponder before the gig. He was an avid drum collector for a long time while I was growing up. And so in our house, there was this treasure trove of equipment, mostly snare drums. I think at one time he had upwards of 70 snares. Damn. Almost all unique. Wow. And he was in on Pearl Masterworks really early and the idea of custom shop drums. And he was just always full of ideas and Never could have the other major drum corporations, Tama, Pearl, etc., really fulfill those visions, mm-hmm. at least early on. So there was this constant searching for tones and the right sizes and the right feel, the right plies, all these combinations of things. There was this big acquisition period trying to find that. I don't know if that was a conscious effort of going on this huge tone search. Like, I'm going to just buy all the gear I can so I can find the perfect thing. I don't know if he was thinking that. But in hindsight, right now, as we're processing, that seems to be the journey of dad. Mm -hmm. And so why guitar then? I mean, it sounds like I would imagine there was a lot of music in the household if your dad is a musician. Yeah, yeah. Is that why you were interested in guitar? I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea. No one's ever told me. Wow. No one was like, you were you were on the kitchen table playing air guitar all day long. <laughs> Nothing like that. I think I thought it was just sick as hell, mm-hmm. <laughs> which has been a motivator for me musically throughout. Pursuing that, which is sick as hell. Yeah. There's the, the cool factor. Is it cool? It supersedes everything else. That's interesting because, and I mean this with all respect, the path that you're describing of like playing in a bunch of orchestral competitions and all of that sort of stuff and not playing in bands could run the risk of being extremely uncool (laughs) in in school. (laughs) You're like, man, your mind and your life don't make sense. (laughs) Well, to be fair, that's what a lot of growing up feels like wanting one thing and pursuing another kind of constantly. A hundred percent. The funny thing is, though, when I was in grade school doing all these things that are completely divergent from where I am now, it was more like I was running track than anything. Mm. You know those people in high school, especially, who are just really good at track, and so they're on the track team? Mm -hmm. It's just like punching the clock. Like, I am good at this, and it's not this huge thing that rules my life or my decisions in these really deep kind of spiritual or existential ways, but I do it because I am good. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I was at at that point. It wasn't until high school-ish and sports started to fade away and stuff like that, that turning point got made. Yeah, I remember listening. I must have been back in September 2020. You did an interview on Instagram with Danny from Horse Torso. Shout out, of course, former Lambda Forms radio guest himself. 
And you mentioned that you were like super into sports growing up. And I know in our own conversations, we've had some asides about baseball. Were you like multi-athlete? Like what, what, what was your focus? What was your athletic passion growing up? Yeah, man, I was doing at least two sports all the time. Baseball and basketball primarily. Mm -hmm. I did baseball for 10 years and uh, I knew it was over at an extremely specific moment. I was in the summer before freshman year of high school baseball camp because we had a week of baseball and a week of basketball before you started school, which was great mm -hmm. socially, honestly, because I've made tons of friends before I even walked in the door. So that was really helpful. But the first time someone threw a breaking ball, like came at me and then suddenly moved over the plate at the end. That was it. My knees basically gave out, <laughs> broke my ankles, just got crossed up. Ooh, damn. And it was the first pitch of the at-bat. So <laughs> I looked down, I looked at the pitcher, and he winked. Which is <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> the most brutal part, I think, was just him knowing... I'm dead meat. I'm just a sinking right. ship ready for the next torpedo. And he sent the next two pitches to the same strike two, strike three. That was it. I couldn't hit it. I swung. I tried. Couldn't do it. And I went, that's that. That's that. I know deep down in my soul, this is it. <laughs> I will never have any kind of uh, pursuit of baseball after this. Uh-huh. Wow. That's so interesting. Like that kind of moment where you come up against your limit, like a hundred percent being that obvious in the moment is so interesting to me because I imagine, and this may be jumping ahead somewhat, but as a musician, you've probably come up against similar moments of like, oh my God, I'm out of my depth or, oh my God, this seems completely impossible. But yet I know to this day, you're still pursuing music. So yes, that's interesting. Did you ever have a moment like that with music where you got thrown a breaking ball and still kept swinging? Yeah, man. My first semester at Berkeley was a completely foundation crumbling couple of months because I was in an environment where everyone was the best from wherever they came from. And then it was that kind of evening of the playing field where everyone is the best. So now everyone is equal. And now whoever is the best here is really the best. Mm -hmm. we've truly shaken out the standings. And luckily, there wasn't this huge, negatively competitive aspect to the drum community, as there normally is not. Usually a very open, warm community of players sharing knowledge, everyone trying to get better. But when you come up against the real monster players, and everyone is a monster in theory, you're like, oh my god. What have I gotten myself into? Mm -hmm. And so I was living with two other drummers, my two roommates, John and Ethan, who are both freaks on their own. Ethan had been playing since he was two. <laughs> Fuck. Two or three. So that's just seven years I can do nothing about. Right. Just seven more years someone has done something before you. There's no way to make up that gap. And then he was just the funkiest drummer I've ever seen. He would use less and less drums over time and get better. <laughs> it was horrifying. It was like the scariest <laughs> thing you've ever seen. And then John was just, again, one of the most deeply pocketed drummers I've ever known. You watch these two guys play and just be covered in lint from the pocket. It was so good. <laughs> and I was coming from a more technical type of playing Tons of emphasis on accuracy and speed and consistency and stuff like that. 
Not that there was no feel to my playing at all, but I just hadn't pursued that as a end of its own. Mm -hmm. It was always just wrapped up in all these other things. So then my first private lesson, my drum teacher, Joe Galliota, the hero, the hero of all, is just tearing my technique apart. The way I grip the sticks, everything. He's like, everything about what you're doing is frightening and will hurt you. So we have to take it all apart and start all over. So I was just way out of my depth in terms of other people's talent and being talented in completely different ways for me. And then I was having to deal with this real crisis of being able to play because I was starting over technique-wise and rebuilding my hands and everything. Mm -hmm. And so usually you don't want to be doing that when you are jumping on the fastest moving train of your life to that point. You want to have that set so you can just walk on the train instead of run and grab a door and be dragged along and have it be this brutal fight just to get going, you know? Right, right. That's interesting that you, because if you were doing this like pretty highly regimented and fairly competitive sounding high school and middle school and all the way back to elementary school drum lifestyle. Yeah. Were you also taking private lessons? Like, why do you think you needed to have that teardown of, of your technique? Where were you getting those bad habits from originally? I was having private lessons, actually. Once I started playing the kit, I didn't even start playing the kit until I was 12. Mm -hmm. And we had moved by then. And so my parents' new house had a full basement. And so there were just drums everywhere, just littered with drums and model trains also. My dad and I have always had a large HO scale model train set wherever we've lived. Huh. It's always been like fixture of the house. Because before there was music, before there was anything, there was trains. I was on a mission for trains. I've always loved trains. Sought out steam train riding expeditions. That's like a huge other facet of my life and my family's life. So there's drums and trains downstairs. But since we had the big basement, I could have private lessons in the house. And my teacher, Joe Costanzo, would actually jam with me a lot. Mm-hmm. He was also a really talented organ player. And so we had a keyboard. And so Joe and I would learn songs, learn drums, but also we would just play together all the time. So a big part of my private lesson education was playing with other people and not just here are these techniques, here are these polyrhythms, here's all this and that. I was actually kind of behind on all of that when I got to tertiary education. I stopped taking lessons with Joe the year before I went to Berkeley to start taking lessons with... John Macaluso, famed prog rock, prog metal drummer, to basically whip me into shape to get me ready to go to school to audition. And so I got to stop you there to find out th this is a Long Island prog metal drummer. I must know who this is. What bands did he play for? <laughs> he played for James Labrie. Oh, the solo project. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He played for Ark mm -hmm. or The Ark. Right. I think he played with Jordan Rudis solo as well. So in the Dream Theater extended universe, for he sure. He is. He, <laughs> <laughs> he is in the DPEU. He's in there. Uh, he lives in Italy now, and he plays for... I know he did at least a studio session or a tour with Symphony X. Yeah, that was going to be my guess. Um, yeah, so like that kind of prog. Yeah, the tri-state area Italian-American prog metal thing. Yeah. <laughs> that is such a thing. Oh, my God. This is such a thing. That's amazing. 
But yeah, so really not until I started taking lessons with John and getting that kind of boot camp happening did those more extended deep techniques start coming into play, which put me behind in a certain way, but put me ahead in another way where I wasn't just this bedroom shedder who didn't know how to play with people. Mm -hmm. Playing with people came really easily to me. I'd been doing it ever since I'd been playing. That seems like the best place to start from, because ultimately, regardless of what your degrees or your focus or your studies is, the end goal is that, you know, like no one goes through all of these steps to get this good at drums to be a bedroom shredder, you know, like, I don't know, maybe YouTube has made that different and now that can be someone's livelihood, but one would expect playing live with other human beings is the point. There's something to be said for the way that the ecosystem has developed where you can be someone who is incredibly proficient on your own and have a career. You know, there are these like super drummers. I think it started with Bozio, Mm -hmm. right? He was like the genesis of the solo kind of drummer. But I don't think that what he was doing was pointing to this. But I see him as the genesis of what has happened. And then you have a guy like Kobus who is one of the first really big YouTube cover people Mm -hmm. covering like Zed and all these huge things. And then that was this like weird YouTube freak phenomenon. And then it started to snowball from there. But yeah, you have guys like Marco Miniman and Lang and an area of drumming like that where it is borderline clinical in its application. Like you can put those guys into a group setting, but what they do and what they have built themselves into is more like a, this is how far we can push the instrument. Sure. But at the same time, a guy like Thomas Lang has made most of his money like touring with the Spice Girls. You know, Hmm. his personal brand is like insane Austrian tech drummer guy. Right. But like he's a gigging musician. And I could guarantee you that when he's going up and doing pop gigs, he's not like, now I shall play four different time signatures with each limb. (laughs) You know, maybe they give him maybe they give him five minutes. (laughs) Right. While they're doing a costume change or something. Yeah. They're like, okay, for the intermission, we have Thomas Lang. (laughs) (laughs) Just hang on to your seats, everyone. We'll be back with the second half of the album Spice. (laughs) I actually did not know that, that he was playing for the Spice Girls. I'm going to have to double check to make sure I actually got that correct. But I know that he's played for like big European pop gigs and whatnot. Fantastic. I mean, Tony Royster Jr. plays for Jay-Z, you know, It, it tracks. Oh, my God. That video of him doing public service announcement. And it's the drum cam. The camera is set up right behind the drums. Right. And he's like playing the most like simple shit in the universe if you look at it on paper, but like swagging the hell out of it. The deepest fucking groove. I remember seeing that and being like, that's that's the dream game. Like that's the yes. coolest job I've yes. ever seen in my life. I want to do that. Yeah. And it just goes to show why someone as big as Jay-Z would hire someone like him to play something that in concept simple. Mm hmm. I mean, there's something to be argued for the best person on earth playing boom, chick, boom, chick. You're going to get something different. Oh, yeah. You'll notice a difference between like the absolute pro doing that and someone who's just gotten it to competency. Because I don't know if this is your experience as well, but like the more you learn, the more microscopic your sense of hearing becomes. And I feel like I had somewhat of a similar trajectory where I was like a big dream theater, prog metal, just shreddy ass, shreddy shit was like all I wanted to do when I was like 19 and going to music school and then started to realize, oh, I can use all of this high level 
high frequency kind of brain stuff and instead focus it on let me play this kick drum exactly on the one right and the three right. you know <laughs> instead instead of thinking like well how can i make it in nine and seven at the same time like no fuck that just use all of that cpu to zoom in on the shit that's actually going to make the song sound good Right. It's like running a program on a brand new computer. And the only thing that computer runs is that one program. Mm -hmm. It's going to run the fastest and the most accurate that it's ever run ever. Going backwards slightly, though, I don't want to neglect your band history before college, because I always find that kind of stuff really interesting. Totally. Yes. Yeah. We like we said, we love a flashback. We're Tarantinoing all over this thing right now. So uh, Webster Dictionary, you just heard it first. <laughs> Tarantinoing. Were you playing in like bands outside of school? What kind of stuff interested you outside of the more scholastic sports version of playing drums when you were growing up? Like what was your passion in it? Yeah. Uh, my favorite band was Green Day for the longest time. From the age of 12 to 21, Green Day was like, I loved it so hard. And I loved Trey Cool because you could hear everything that he played. Mm -hmm. the long island scene i was in a lot of ska a lot of pop punk a lot of just fast drums and the thing that would distinguish you was could you have everything you play be heard mm -hmm. could all your fills land were all your fills super even and accurate were they kind of different and unique those were the things that the situation i was in in a music scene were dictating what i was prioritizing when i was playing or when i was practicing so I wasn't in a band until high school. And the first gig I ever did, actually, I was in my freshman year. And then it was a senior who was in jazz band. This is a guitarist named Tom. Uh, man, I'm forgetting his last name. I want to say it's like Zelensky or Zelezny. Tom, if you're out there, send me a message. Whatever his last name was, he was the last in the alphabet, the last in the yearbook, Tom. And we did basically a lounge gig at a restaurant in Hampton Bay's on the water, just drums and guitar outside on the deck for like two hours straight. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't do another thing like that basically until I played a wedding. Right. Like 10 years later. But after that, I was, I don't forget how I actually ended up getting together with these guys, but they were from the local public school. Uh, West Hampton Public School. And I was going to St. Anthony's, which was in Huntington, which was like an hour away. So I forget how all this, the connections went together. But yeah, we formed a like Green Day Blink type punk band. But it was also with me on the drums. So there was like a cover of Brain Stew where the end had like an insanely long double bass break. <laughs> <laughs> like before they would play jaded like that minute before jaded just all double bass just so where were you picking the double bass up from then if you were really into green day like where did that come from slipknot avenge sevenfold and protest the hero okay so you weren't just into pop punk you had some some metal in you back then as well yeah yeah totally i mean i started playing zeppelin and, and black crows and classic stuff like that that was my mm-hmm foundation like any bonham thing is really the genesis of everything else that i do totally i can always point back to that or ringo i used to listen to abbey road and just play it from top to bottom just play abbey road just down 
But yeah, once I was 14 or 15, I was watching tons of Headbangers Ball as well and just soaking all that up and wanting to put it in this other context mm-hmm. because I wasn't really a metalhead first and foremost. You know, I had these metal seasonings throughout my playing, but it wasn't like a metal heavy existence. I got to ask then where you fell on the dividing line between Waking the Fallen and City of Evil when it comes to Avenged Sevenfold. Like, were you one of the people that were like, fuck City of Evil, this band sucks now? (laughs) Or were you one of the people that came on after City of Evil? I came on during Waking the Fallen. Okay, excellent. I saw the music video and I was like, this is amazing. Amazing. I remember bringing that to my private lesson. Dun, dun. And the ending, once I learned the ending, I was like, yes, yes, this is amazing. Total Pantera drum beat for sure. But then I got City of Evil and I was like, this album rips just as hard. It's a totally different record, but easily the same band and even more insane drumming. Drumming in that album is berserk. There's that one song that has a double bass break where he's doing like some insane like 30 second note roughs and there's just nothing else happening in the stereo field. It's like, what? What did I just hear? Dude. You know? Yes. Uh, You mean when he played Bleed before Bleed was Bleed? Oh, yeah. You mean that song? Yeah, the Herta. (laughs) I didn't understand that fill for years years i was just like what i i don't i can't process this rhythm (laughs) you know basically i until i understood bleed Mm -hmm. and was able to internalize what it was and then i went back to city of evil i think just out of pure nostalgia curiosity like how has this album aged i haven't listened to it in like six years and then the song blinded in chains comes on that's it that's it yes and I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> this guy played Bleed in 2005. Bleed wasn't even until 2008. Are you kidding? Which means, obviously, that Thomas Hawk loves Avenged Sevenfold. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> uh, there's a sniper. There's a sniper laser on my head right now, just because I said that. Automatically. The Mashuga stands are out for you. Yeah, they already know. Yeah, this is um, automatically canceled in uh, <laughs> metal drums. Sorry, everyone. Do you have any like white whale fills like that, that you grew up listening and heard and were like, oh my God, how do I even approach that you've since gone back and learned? Or are there any that still elude you? Hmm. None that have come to mind right in this moment. Um, Basically any Dillinger I've never taken the time to learn. Mm -hmm. I think that catalog, probably everything except Miss Machine and the other couple of songs I know is a white whale. (laughs) (laughs) I think that would be fair to say. A whole pod of whales then. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just a murderous herd of whales. (laughs) But I remember listening to Fortress by Protest the Hero and wanting that double kick pattern to happen with one foot. I remember that pursuit that I was on where I was like, these 300 BPM songs. He's cheating. He's totally cheating using two feet. You don't need two feet. You can just do this with one foot. Fuck that. And the other thing that really pissed me off was that Mo would never do, he would never play one on the hi-hat. He would always just play two and four with his two hands together to play his D beats. 
I feel like that's like an old school hardcore thing. I remember watching a lot of Comeback Kid. Oh, yes. Live videos. And that dude would never play one and three. It was always just like hands synced up, you know? Yeah. I mean, people still do that now and it enrages me less, but <laughs> still I'm like, come on, come on. Just hulk it out with your, with your lead hand. You can do it. It'll sound better. Mm -hmm. I still stick by that. That D beats with an even hand are superior. I remember having sort of the opposite realization of I was a huge, at, I'm still am like a huge at the gates guy because I was really into that melodic metalcore thing in the early 2000s. And eventually you got to go to the original source. Yes, I actually went to Gothenburg. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I, I need to go all the way back. Yeah, like Darkest Hour, I flew all the way out there to get the true Swedish knowledge. <laughs> Hell yes, brother. Uh, obviously not true. But I remember when I first heard Blinded by Fear and the opening riff, I thought he was just alternating hands it because that's what all of the other bands that were in America were doing with that kind of beat, like basically like a super slow blast beat. And then I re-listened kind of recently. And I was like, oh, no, he's playing all of those eighth notes and they are fast and he's playing them very loudly. <laughs> so you cannot cheat that. <laughs> Yeah, dude, there, I think a lot of my chops or beats are reactionary like that, mm. like watching other drummers do things that I disagreed with and, and going, no, no, I can't, I can't resolve this. I, I have to see this at to whatever the quote unquote true end of this, you know? And so you were playing in bands in high school. Did you try to keep those together when you went to college or was it just kind of like a clean split off to Boston, mm. off to rebuild your technique kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. My first band ended uh, junior year-ish, and then I got into a slightly bigger local band that actually had a record deal put in front of us. Which record label, if you don't mind me asking? I think some, like, let's call it a label, local people gotcha. with some okay. money were like, here's a contract. Mm -hmm. We will put together an album with you. And I decided to go to college instead. And then the band promptly broke up. <laughs> it was like, that was it right away. <laughs> fell apart. <laughs> I was like, damn, I guess that had no legs anyway. That sucks, but made the right choice. And then in college, were you playing in bands outside of school or was it just super focused on getting your shit together on chasing that train, as you put it? No, I was in playing in groups as fast as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. I thought that was the point. You know, I'm in this sea of unbridled young talent. I need to throw myself into it and just mix it up, dude. See what happens. Because you could walk down the hallway and just tap a random couple of people on the head and start a band and it'd probably be pretty sick if you just stuck it out, you know? One of my favorites that didn't last, unfortunately, was a ska band called Frank Sinatra, where all we played was Frank Sinatra covers as like third wave ska. <laughs> it was so sick. The listeners cannot see the face that I just made, but um, it was a face. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it was a it was a scoff to decapitate a mountain. <laughs> but yeah, through that kind of trial and error period, I stumbled into a band called Auto Catalytica mm -hmm. and saw that they had an audition poster on the wall and I'd never heard of the band or anything. I just wanted to be in every band I could. And I called the poster progressive metal band seeking drummer and i said i don't play progressive metal but what the fuck let's give it a shot so at that point i was playing tons of post-hardcore mm -hmm. i had been through my four-year strong period of pop punk with double bass 
And now it was just all the way forward into dark, screamy shit. Was there like a turning point moment, a particular band that you remember launching you into the deep end with that? Seosin. Uh-huh. Okay. Without a doubt. I think Seosin is a demarcation point in my playing. Because if you listen to Translating the Name and the self-titled LP, and then you listen to any album I've ever been on, you can go, oh, I see. <laughs> Oh, I see. You are an Alex Rodriguez fan, <laughs> which I am. I think he's a criminally underrated drummer. He's a complete beast and had such a huge impact on me. Just so inspiring the way that he was able to expand the drums vocabulary in that genre and just the drums role in crafting a song and propelling a song, especially lifting it emotionally. Mm -hmm. That was a very emotionally intense band musically. The music itself could really push you to a place, but the way that the drums would elevate them would take them to their zenith. And I think without his playing or the kinds of choices that he would make, that, that band or that style just wouldn't have gotten to that place and wouldn't have been as affecting. I'll admit that that style is not really in my wheelhouse, but I did see Seosin live once. I was actually just talking about this tour with another friend of mine, just like peak, no one knows what they're doing, throw all these bands into one bill and just figure it out. So it was Senses Fail headlining, yes. Seosin, and then Bleeding Through opening. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> And so my my resentful teenage ass was there to see Bleeding Through because I had unresolved anger issues. And I ended up sticking around for Seosin and I was like, oh shit, this band, they're kind of kicking ass. Like they're kind of killing it right now. You're like, oh no, I hate to admit this, but this rules. Insanely tight, really, really great musicianship in that band. So like regardless of what our listeners to this episode may think of Seosin, give those records another listen because they really, really knew what they were doing. Yes. Yeah. And man, they were so innovative in the branding and marketing of the band as well. They were one of the first bands to have like a really intense online presence with their fans. They had something called Seo TV, where they were essentially doing vlogs in like 2005, mm -hmm. 2006. That was not territory people were in at that point. Was that the kind of stuff that you were inspired by by bands when you were coming up too? Like, were you looking to see who was taking the business side of things seriously as well? Hmm. I don't think so. I don't think I was really that conscious of that until I learned about it in retrospect. It was one of those things where I went, oh man, they had so much more going on than even just being a band. They played a festival called Skate and Surf in 2014, which also had these insane lineup mashups. Newfound Glory was headlining. It was when Seosin had just reunited with Anthony Green, and I'd obviously never seen that combination before because he left the band the first time in 2003 or four to form Circus Survive, and I was barely cognizant of that music at that time, if at all. So I saw that, had a huge teenage wet dream come true, and then later that day, a little-known band by the name of Animals as Leaders was playing, <laughs> and I end up next to Justin, their former guitarist justin just me and justin in the crowd like hanging out geeking out talking about all kinds of weird proggy music and then i had one of those fan moments that could only happen by chance justin and i had a moment together which i will savor for the rest of my life the new animals album had just come out joy of motion joy of motion had just come out and so physical education was like the prog nerd pinnacle song at, at that time 
So they were about to play it. And the only time they changed the guitars was for this song. And Tosin and uh, what's the other guitarist's name? I can't help you here. I apologize. Damn it. (laughs) I am so sorry. I will think of it. I'll think of it and, and yell it out at an inappropriate time while Ian and I are talking like in another half hour about something <laughs> deeply personal. But Tosin, he pulls out this other guitar and doesn't tune it. And then the other guitarist is tuning like a normal person. And Tosin is ripping on him for like a minute while he's tuning this new guitar and is just giving him shit the whole time. And then they start physical education and we all suddenly realize that Tosin is wildly out of tune. <laughs> like abysmally out of tune and they can't stop the song because they've got all the sequencers happening and all the shit is synced up to axe effects and midi and like the delays are firing and everything's going on and he's insanely out of tune and me and justin just look at each other and start dying laughing (laughs) just dying i was just like is this happening is this really happening did he really just eat his words right away for the whole song. It was amazing. It was amazing. Unforgettable. And there was another moment in that festival where I was waiting to see structures and next to them was the Acacia strain. Oh boy. Who wouldn't stop playing. They wouldn't stop after their time had run out. So they shut their lights off on their stage and killed the power and the drummer just kept playing the same breakdown. (laughs) But Structure's set had started and so there was a pit, but the Acacia Strain pit is basically their entire crowd. And so that pit just opened and merged into ours. (laughs) And so there was like this two stage wide pit. And I was standing next to this girl and someone did a multiple cartwheels through the pit. That sounds like the Acacia strain to me. Yeah. Yeah. And they ended up not landing it and cartwheeling her in the head. Oh, shit. Oh, it was so bad. I felt so bad. She was okay. Like picked her up and made sure she was all right with her friends and stuff. But I was like, holy God, we need to go. We need to go now. It's funny, in my experience, usually Acacia Strain shows kind of stop themselves because of people getting into fights. (laughs) That's amazing. Wow. (laughs) What's the end time for the gig? It'll end itself, trust us. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get about three notes into uh, into Car Bomb and then it's it's over. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Very efficient system, though. So scrolling back, yes, you see this flyer, progressive metal band. You're like, fuck it. Let's do it. Yeah. For AutoCat, they sent this song, which ended up being Across the Circle, which is the last song on our first record. And it was the craziest shit I'd ever heard. I was like, I have to learn this. It's so insane. I have to try. So I took a couple weeks to learn the song and try and fit myself into it and whatever and it came time for the audition and they had someone come in before me. And so I was coming into a, you know, a warmed up room and everything, which is always kind of nerve wracking when you're like in the multiple people audition, people are just kind of in and out and you're like, oh God. So I sit down and they had also asked me to learn a Lamb of God song, which I did not do. <laughs> They're like, all right, so let's warm up with the Lamb of God song, this and that. And I was like, I don't like Lamb of God. Fuck that. 
I learned your song though. Let's play that. And they're like, oh, okay. Because <laughs> I think they expected to play the Lamb of God song like what a normal person would play. And then they'll kind of chunk through the original song being the fucking crazy thing that it is. Mm-hmm. And we rip through the song one time and everyone looks around and they're like, uh, all right, crazy guy, you're the drummer, I guess. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what? What do you mean? Like, you can play this. Like, you're it. Like, oh, fuck. Okay. When we left and I was like, I have to do this now. Oh, my God. What have I started? So you accidentally knocked it out of the park going back to our baseball metaphor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I meant to do the song well and everything, but I didn't realize I was going to secure a position in a band at the audition. That's a crazy thing. I don't think I'd ever done that before. Mm -hmm. And then they promptly asked me who my favorite band was, and it was still Green Day. So I was like, Green Day, very confidently. (laughs) And they were... I think they were all Eric and Eric and John were like this close to firing me (laughs) right away. Just on principle. Like, no. (laughs) They're like, whatever, man, you make no sense, but we'll see you at practice. (laughs) Uh, Good time. So that kept going out of college as well. Yes, Autocatalytica went from 2009 to our last album was at 2016, Vicissitudes. Mm -hmm. I don't actually know a ton about this band. Did you guys like tour? Like how how seriously did you take it? Very seriously. We were really dedicated to that project. And it just was such a rotating cast that it was really difficult to gain momentum, especially in the beginning when we were learning all the stuff. And the music was very, very progressive and really kind of long winding songs and really technical and linear and stuff. So if someone would leave the band or we needed a sub or whatever, we mostly had to spend our time teaching people the material and relearning the material instead of having a block of songs recording a record, playing shows, and advancing the band. We were constantly starting over in a way, you know, so we didn't get a ton of momentum like that until we moved everything to New York after school. And Eric Thorfinson, who is like band leader, brain, he moved to New York the year before me. And so he was coming back and forth to Boston for shows and we were going to New York for shows and everything. So, you know, we really were grinding a lot with that band, but really it wasn't until unfortunately right till the end of the band that we started to gain any traction. And then the band ended right as it was just kind of getting started. Mm-hmm. When you say like gaining traction, are you talking about like press attention, people coming out to shows? Like what what does that look like? In- yeah, people were like starting to recognize us from shows, see us in public and be like, oh, it's AutoCAD, sick. Mm-hmm. And there was like starting to be an audience, you know, within that whole niche metal math core thing. So it was really tough because, you know, seven, six, seven years of not really getting much and alienating the audience a lot. And then only toward the very end, having some forward momentum. It seems, though, that like you've kind of built on that reputation to some degree. Yeah. Now you're the guy from AutoCAD that does all this other stuff, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. So when you moved back to New York, from my understanding, at least you have hit the ground running and you're playing in a ton of bands again. Yeah. I think I first saw your face in a promo picture for mutilation rights before I ever met you. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Back in my metal blogging days. Yeah, that was, uh, was that before 
No, that was um, that was after Math Core Index. Oh, okay. Then I'm a fucking idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, no, it's okay. I think maybe you didn't see me mm-hmm. myself until then. You know, I just remember like seeing the promo picture, being like that guy. <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Was I like a very obvious new guy or did I just look like a maniac or you've got, well, I'll, t- I'll say this. And I, again, I mean this with all due respect. You have a very intense gaze in photographs. <laughs> so I you know now that I remember remembering, yes, I knew you from the math core index fest. And then I, I got that promo email and saw your eyes glaring at me from the picture and was like, Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> this guy gets around. <laughs> Man, I remember that photo shoot and being kind of unsure of how to present myself because I'd never been in a metal band like that, Mm -hmm. like a proper metal outfit and had proper metal coverage and fans and whatever. Every other metal band I'd ever been around or been in was very tongue in cheek about its metalness. So my strategy was to just be as threatening looking as I could. I was like, have the eyes of a murderer. And I think that will translate into being quote unquote metal. Right. <laughs> and I guess I guess it worked. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I became aware of you through this explosion of math core, math metal, this kind of resurgent energy in that scene that's been happening over the last four years or so. Yeah, totally. Was that your experience when you moved back to New York that this sort of thing was starting to bubble back up? Or what's your impression from like then till now with that whole movement? It's funny. When I moved back, it wasn't that scene necessarily that I was pursuing. It was just that Brooklyn would cater to music like Autocatalytica. Mm hmm. It was like, we can move here and be this weird, heavy thing. There's going to be people who will like that. And I really loved that scene. I had interned at the venue Roulette down by Atlantic Terminal, which is all just new avant-garde music and jazz and multimedia stuff. And I was like, yeah, I love this. And the scene here was just more of, I wanted to just be a part of it, less than this very specific kind of music is ramping back up again. I want to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. It's awesome that they coincided because I definitely found a lot of kindred players and people just as a result of those two things happening simultaneously. And to tie it all in, because of Autocatalytica, I, in a way, got the gig playing with arms a few times. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. It's all starting to piece together in my mind now. Because I remember ARMS from that first Math Core Index Fest as well. Um, so now I'm, I'm starting to see it all come together. They had heard the last AutoCAD album and they were just big fans of that. And so there was a gig where I filled in for them without ever having met them. And they had heard me play in this other thing. And they were like, oh, okay, we trust you because you have a proven track record that we like. I was like, that's amazing. You even listened to this band I was in. Like, how did that even happen? That's awesome. And then once that happened, I started becoming that guy who was filling in for bands last minute or that band is going on tour and they need a drummer. You know, I'm the guy or like (laughs) when I was playing with Manic Pixie, I think we played a show in Ohio house show and one of the bands didn't have a drummer, but they wanted a drummer and they were like the last band and I just played their set. (laughs) (laughs) Never heard their music, never met them, just sat in. (laughs) How did that, this is like heavy music? Like, no, no, no. This was, this is like indie rock. Oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense. (laughs) 
I feel like you can intuit that way better than like the sort of shit that I'm used to hearing you play. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, I could never sit down with a mathcore band and just sit in. That's not possible. You'd never catch... You'd... Well, if, you, if you've got like a really, really sturdy 4-4, you can just mashuga it, I guess. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You could just really confidently keep a pulse going and everyone would be like, I guess it's... I don't get it, but it seems wrong, but... <laughs> Mashuga exists, so you could. I could justify that. Yeah, sure, man. It's vibe. It's a vibe. <laughs> Anything with enough confidence eventually will become a vibe. <laughs> Musically speaking, what it, what is vibe but confidence? This is true. Yeah, man. Yeah, preach, preach. Vibe one hundred and one. First chapter: confidence. Last chapter: confidence. Class closed. Class dismissed. <laughs> So at this point, I would like to kind of speed us up into post first Detach the Islands record. Yes, we've caught up to what we know, and now we're going to have a time skip. Mm -hmm. So it's been, as you said, over a year, year and a half, almost two years, however you want to put it. Yeah. What have you been up to? Man, let's see. Mainly what I'm asking, I think the big question that I've been asking a lot of my guests is, how was your 2020? Oh, okay. Yeah, that. Well, let me catch you up before then, because I'm getting a sense of where I was and everything. Sure. Because the other question is, what did you think 2020 would be? <laughs> Which Oh, wow. You know. I have a very definite answer of what that is. Super definite answer. But before we get to that, man. Um, okay. So yeah, 2019, the Semaphore album was out which was really cool. It was like the first time I had taken a project start to finish as the mixer, you know, guy behind the board, not just the guy behind the drums, which was really cool. And same thing with the Detach the Islands album. You know, I was mixing it and everything. And it was really a great learning experience to have the bandwidth and the low risk factor in those releases to be able to do that. The newer albums require a higher level of fidelity and and technique so i i'm not gonna say i relinquished the reins or anything but i didn't even push for that this time around in 2019 i joined a band called fluoride mm -hmm. i remember you were just about to go on tour with them or you had just gotten back by the time we did the interview okay yeah because i did a tour with them at the, yeah, at the end of july into the beginning of august so yeah it might have been right before the interview mm-hmm so yeah, just joined Fluoride, just went to Canada to play New Friends Fest with them, huge Screamo Festival. And by huge, I mean like 500 people, which for a Screamo Fest is massive. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about a niche, man. Like, I don't know who's more niche, Screamo or Mathcore. <laughs> you could have a niche duel. Between it that. feels like ve two very closely related and intersecting niches in a lot of ways. But white belt versus all black, I guess, would be the distinction. But. Yo, that's <laughs> sick, actually. Make that compilation, dude. Actually, the MathCore Index, they're not split, but they've spawned a sister channel, Screamo Index. Right, butted off, asexual reproduced Screamo Index. There's too much Screamo content in our MathCore arena, so we need to section off a new part of ourselves to have the Screamo part have its due. So you're saying that it's been sectioned? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Audible dabs are appropriate. For the audience at home, dabs were just had. <laughs> yeah. So Fluoride, which was an amazing tour, 
Rick and Susie, really awesome bandmates and friends. And that subsequently led to a lot of other really fantastic shows with Fluoride. They do insane gigs. Tons of old power violence bands, most notably Drop Dead. Damn. Yeah. Man, man, they're still faster than like everyone and they're <laughs> 60 or some shit. <laughs> it's crazy, dude. It's crazy. And they put out new music. <laughs> we had a 25 year gap between music or something. And it's just like, this is still fierce. How do you do that? Much respect. Vegans, man. Vegans have that rage. They've got it. And then I had like one of the busiest musical periods of my life happen at the latter third quarter of 2019. Uh, I was on the way back from a fluoride show in Philly. We had a one-off in Philly and I was on the bus and I got a message from one Billy Reimer. Listeners may be familiar. And he's like, dude, saw you joined fluoride. They rule. Thumbs up. And I was already just that alone. I was just blown away by that. I was like, holy fuck dude i almost had a heart attack on the bus i was like are you kidding <laughs> this is amazing he follows it up with what are you doing in october you know are you touring and i said well we have one gig in october with drop dead but otherwise nothing else right now and this was august mm-hmm. and he's like this band godmother needs a fill-in drummer can you do it and i i was mentally just standing at attention like saluting like yes sir <laughs> <laughs> like yes i will do what it takes to do the gig i will make it happen so godmother is on party smasher right which ben manages which meant i'd be interfacing with ben in some way so i had another heart attack And this is all the while I'm in communication with ARMS again to record their next full-length album, which I would be doing at the end of September of that year. And I'm going to go to Orlando to Paul's house, his house slash studio, to record. And then I was in contact with the good people at OLAM, Indiana-based mathcore band. OLAM, O-L-A-M for the uninitiated. They put out an album called I Will Guide Thy Hand. Fuck, what a beast of an album. Incredible. So I was talking to them because they had a big gig coming up. Their drummer was moving away and they didn't want to miss the gig. And they're like, it's opening for the number 12 looks like you. <sighs> Shit. Wow. You're, you've just fell right into the 2000s mathcore nirvana, you know? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Circling around Dillinger and number 12 in these, you know, orbits. This is the other tri-state area sound. First, we were describing the prog metal tri-state area sound, and then there's the much weirder, much mathier tri-state area sound. Yes, the jazz punk nerdathon that is that group of bands. So I was talking to Olam, and they're like, we have this gig. We don't want to miss it. Can you fly out for the show? It'll be in Indianapolis. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds amazing. So I later find out that the Godmother tour, which is going to be like the weekend after the ARMS recording session, is opening for number 12 Looks Like You. Oh, wow. (laughs) So you've signed yourself up to open for yourself? Yes. (laughs) It was the craziest shit. Saves you on the flight, I guess. So, yeah. So I wasn't going to fly anymore, but this means that I was going to... Oh, and this was all while learning Miss Machine shit again. (laughs) For October, right. (laughs) All right. So we're doing the second Miss Machine show in the middle of everything. And I'm just like, I'm going to (laughs) die. Everything was scheduled out correctly. You know, nothing was clashing, but it was just all butted right up against each other. So I was like, okay. 
I am just going to basically be in the practice room every single day and have to very strategically focus my energy, focusing only on the thing that's in front of me very intentionally, and then slowly fading in the next thing or two things. Mm-hmm. And this was still all the while playing semaphore gigs, playing Attach the Islands gigs, doing all that stuff. So August, September, October, I was just pedal to the metal. I don't think I've ever played that much in that short of amount of time with that many different things to keep track of. And yeah, opening for myself was borderline kamikaze mission, you know, because I never got to rehearse with Olin. You fly out for a gig. Hopefully you can do a day of rehearsal before or something or whatever. Or you just have that one thing to rehearse yourself. Right. You should be like, I am totally dedicated to this. I am totally locked in. This is all I am focusing on. Not, I am learning a completely separate harebrained 15 song album and then getting ready for a three week US and Canada tour. And then in the middle of that tour, play a separate set of mathcore on top of it and have to never rehearse with that band and just kind of keep it fresh in my mind while I'm also on tour. <laughs> right. That sounds like a, a prime area of what you're using for sound check is rehearsing this other band's material while you're playing. <laughs> like, that's at least the way that I, my dumbass would do it. I feel like I've described myself that way multiple times in this podcast. But, <laughs> like, if you only have to do it once, you can get used to the Godmother set and incorporate all of the Olam stuff along the way. Right. I feel like I'm I'm coaching you through something you've already done. So this is like a complete waste of time. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, uh, I'm just the proxy for the listener who has not done this yet. Ian is coaching you, listener, through me. But so it all... Fantastic. You're just a giver, dude. You're just a giver. It's true. You can't stop. But you're here. You're alive. It seems like it all went okay that insane month. How did it go on your end? Oh, it was amazing, dude. It was such an adrenaline-fueled dream come true. When you're the drummer for hire, when you want to be a professional drummer, that's what you really want. You want this seemingly impossible Everest to come at you and be like, can you do it, bro? Do you have what it takes? Can you muster the focus, the endurance to compartmentalize three or four different bands nearly simultaneously? Come at me. Right. Or are you going to go out swinging? Yeah. I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to do that. I was exhausted. I think I got home October 19th from the Godmother tour and had the fluoride gig that night. And then on October 20th, I think I slept the entire day. (laughs) (laughs) But man, yeah, I mean, I could spend the the whole podcast just reminiscing about that period of time. You got hooked up with the Sonhet dudes shortly thereafter as well, right? Yeah. Oh, man, I hadn't even gotten all of that saga. So for those who don't know, I also am a audio editor, dialogue editor in the post audio space. Besides being a drummer, that's where I put all my degree eggs into. I was like, this is the career I can see myself having in audio. I'm going to completely lean into this. And in this summer, I was interning at Red Hook Post, post-production house in Red Hook. Really amazing place. Worked on some incredible material, movies, series there. Check out my IMDb. At that time, I was needing a foothold in the industry, and I was like, I am 28 years old, 29 years old, and about to intern. Oh, man. I have to do it, though. This is what I have to do to get my foot in, so I'm just going to suck it up 
and still work and do everything, but also do this. And it's a big ego check to intern in your almost your 30s, but it was a completely awesome experience. So don't be afraid if you're out there and you need to bite it like that to get ahead, just do it. But I mentioned that because I was at the internship and I got an Instagram message from John at Sanhet. He's like, hi, my name is John. I'm in this band Sanhet. We're looking for a drummer, et cetera, et cetera. Would you be interested? And I was like, that name sounds really familiar. Why? It's because I've seen a Sanhet sticker at literally every gig I've ever played. Their sticker and their name is everywhere. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Can you attest to this? Their branding is on point. They have just labeled every single venue in Brooklyn at the very least. You will know their name, whether you know their tunes or not. Exactly. Like I never listened to them, never had anyone show them to me or anything. I'm just like, I'm incredibly aware of this geometric symbol and this name. I don't know what it means. Help. And then all of a sudden it comes to my front door. So I audition and it was one of the first times where I didn't get the audition at the first audition. Mm. I was like, that's it. That means I fa- I failed. <laughs> Lo and behold, I just had to do another audition like a regular person. I'm curious, though. What do you <laughs> think didn't go well in that first audition? Like, what did you not nail in the first go around? It was the previous drummer's particular groove. Mm-hmm. And just the way he would approach things, I wasn't exactly totally clued into. But after having that pointed out and re-listening and re-shedding everything, that kind of fell into place. And I was like, okay, me and AJ, the bassist, were like actually locked in in this very specific way that they need. So that rules. And then we started learning a set Mm -hmm. to headline Rough Trade. And it was their first show in, I think, a year, something like that. Especially for Brooklyn. Like they had not played at home in a bit. And so... This was a big return to form before we were going to go in and write another album together. And then we were planning on going on tour in the summer. I was really, really pumped. Uh, the Rough Trade show is in March. March what? Because <laughs> there's a dividing point in there. Because if it was after March 10th. Ee. No, March 7th. Yeah. Yep. March 7th, we play a sold out show at Rough Trade. It was amazing. It was amazing. It was one of the best shows I've played in years, especially with all the Sanet visuals going on and the projections. Yeah, they're a sick live band. Yeah, I had so much fun and I was just so juiced to keep that momentum going. But lo and behold, the entire world was brought to a halt not two weeks later when I was supposed to be with Olam again going to South by Southwest. Mm hmm. So I've got my 2020 schedule in front of me because I, at a certain point, started making tour posters for myself to post to social media because it was getting to be too much to try and sort all the different bands over numbers of months and everything. So I was like, I am going to just aggregate the next four to five months for everyone into one place with all the dates, all the bands could see everything it's gonna be nice and simple Mm -hmm. so i had mine for 2020 from march until the end of june all set and a festival in october with fluoride and this was after january and february semaphore had just opened for spotlights i was at that show Yes, dude. It's fucking awesome. We had been trying to play with them for years. And Sadu and Mario had a good rapport going. So it was just really amazing timing. And we got to play at Zone 1, which I had been just fiending to play at for years. It was just such a huge moment of deliverance. And thank God we got it in then. 
Semaphore also recorded our next full-length album in January or February, I want to say. We went to Timber Studios in New Jersey with Adam Sikaki, drummer of Gatherers, which Sadu is now the bassist of Gatherers. And we were just going to go there to demo. We're going to go there for a weekend, and then we were going to take that and shop the demos around and then record it for real some other time. Well, the demos went so well, they just became the album. (laughs) Fuck yeah. Hell yeah. I love that. And we tracked all the instruments in like a day and a half. Y'all are some pros. That's what it... (laughs) It's crazy, dude. (laughs) That's what it means. We were really surprised, even at ourselves. Like, is this real? This This is sounding too good. You know, the drums sounded amazing. The guitars sounded huge. Even some of the vocals were done that weekend. Final takes were just Sadu in the control room going, this is it. It was wild, you know. And some of them were recorded with no click and we were all just playing live at the same time. And so like the first song on the album is just us in the room, one take Mm -hmm. all the way through. And you could definitely hear some drum moments that I did not intend to have those be the final takes. I was like, these are the demos. I can just kind of do crazy stuff. And then that's it. <laughs> like, this is like the 70s, man. Stuck with it now. <laughs> yeah. I felt like an old school rock drummer recording to tape. All right. You did your two takes. Whatever the better take is, that's what they hear. Fuck, man. Mm-hmm. That's wild. So, yeah, we come to March 2020 and that beautiful calendar and tour posters that you laid out for yourself, kaput. Man. So just to set the scene of heartbreak, I was already in Indiana. I flew out there like the 11th or 12th to rehearse with Olam because we were going to tour, like I said, to South By and back over like 10 days or two weeks or something. And the South by showcase was for Mathcore Index. And it was like with meth and gift from God and shin guard and just all the heavy hitters. I was just over the moon pumped. And the Olam guys hadn't been on tour before and stuff. So it was just this whole huge, awesome moment that we were supposed to have. We were rehearsing and, re- and everything seemed okay or at least in the the U.S. regarding the virus. And the day before our first show, on the 13th, everything was fine. The day of our first show, which was in Indianapolis, all the Texas dates get canceled, Mm -hmm. which was the middle four shows of the run. So we're like, okay, South By is canceled. So what can we do? We can play the first couple of shows and then the last couple of shows, or we can go in the studio and record something. This sucks. We'll kind of figure it out. Play the first show, and then the next day we were supposed to go to St. Louis, and we packed the van, and we're just hitting the highway. Like, we had been on the road for 15 minutes. Every other show on the tour gets canceled, and suddenly nationwide shows are getting canceled left and right like dominoes, and we're like, oh no, it's really happening. This is really bad. And I was supposed to fly... A couple days later, and then we changed my flight to that night. And so we were off the road at two, and I was in the air at six, back to New York. And three days later, the shit really hit the fan, and lockdown started. I flew in and basically didn't leave my apartment for the preceding three weeks straight. I was working at Trader Joe's right before I left for tour, and then once I came home, I just didn't go back. Obviously, I called them and I was like, look, 
I don't want to be working with the public in the middle of the pandemic. I have Crohn's disease and my immune system is completely shot. So I will let you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, remember at that time, everyone was like, oh, it'll just be a little bit. It'll be a couple of weeks or a month or whatever. So I was always in this will I want day with my job. But eventually, once it appeared very clearly that this was not going to end right away, they were just like, you don't have to keep calling us. You can just let us know if and when you're coming back and we'll just kind of keep you on hold, which is so heroic of Trader Joe's. Shout out to Trader Joe's and all my other Trader Joe's employees out there. One of my coworkers was nice enough to bring me groceries at that time, too. Kind of before this whole Instacart infrastructure really came up to speed in the months to come. Damn. Shout out to them. Ingrid. Shout out to Ingrid. Brought me groceries once a week for the three or four weeks that I was in lockdown out here. So I didn't have to go anywhere. It was amazing. So then how did you spend your time? How's the last year been for you? Music saved my life. Go figure. (laughs) (laughs) it's almost like that's what we've been talking about the whole time Hmm. how did that happen (laughs) how could that have been true well man i just basically threw myself into working on projects you know sonnet again was getting ready to write new music so I just went through a bunch of old files that I thought were Sonhit appropriate and started cranking out ideas for that. And then my electronic project, Heaven View, had had a bunch of songs on the periphery, not really done yet, but just nearly done and really needed that last push for another album, which is 99% done now, which is really excited for those songs to come together. And then I had a Detach the Islands album to finish writing and transcribing. (laughs) So with that transcription process, I could, if I was really hustling, I could get like a song done a day for each instrument for one song. And then I just had lyrics to finish. And so I just had a whole bunch of stuff kind of waiting around that had been on the back burner or just needed the time to get dedicated to that I couldn't do when I was working full time and touring and doing all this other stuff. So really all the things that had been building up behind the dam had their due. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what really kept me going in the beginning, for sure. And then that momentum really sustained for a while. Semaphore recorded a covers EP. The Pillows cover EP? Yeah, from Fooly Cooly. I forgot that this is another part of this podcast that we had planned initially as you wanted to talk about anime at some point. but It's good, man. There's no avoiding it, honestly. <laughs> I'm a huge anime fan, and I know you are too, and you're currently neck deep in anime. It's true. I've started a whole other side hustle for <laughs> based on my love of anime. Yeah, man. I, and I definitely want to talk about that because I am such a fanboy for the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Where were we? Yeah, before we totally go anime. Right. So Semaphore records The Pillows. That was the first time I was recording at home because mm-hmm. I was back at my parents' house at this point. On Easter weekend of last year, they drove out to the city, came and got me with a bunch of my shit, and I took like my whole desk set up and a bunch of clothes and some gear and left. And I didn't come back at all for four months straight. I basically just was like at my folks' house nonstop. 
barely went outside of our neighborhood. You know, I was taking lots of walks in nature and stuff, but didn't really see anyone or anything. And then I had the opportunity to record some other projects while I was at home. So I was really honing the home studio workflow and getting used to just being at home again and living with my parents at almost 30 years old. It was, that was a real trip. I think that's something everyone in a lot of ways had to deal with. Maybe not that directly, but a large number of people definitely moved back in with their folks or had to just Mm -hmm. take some kind of lifestyle ego check. Well, at least you had 70 snares to work with for your home recording. At this point, the collection has been way, way pared down. Makes sense. Because my dad started making his own drums. Oh, fuck yeah. Good for him. Yeah. In 2005, he started ordering his own shells and his own hardware and wraps and everything. And so now he really only plays his own stuff. He doesn't play any production kits. So he's basically sold everything else unless I preserved something for myself. But yeah, dad has his own kits, which sound unbelievable. And I used them for all the recording I did in 2020 and everything I've done so far in 2021, including the new Detach the Islands album. Is that the stuff that's on the as to be yet unannounced Lamniforms material as well? Yeah, man. Okay, good to know. And I was always remiss to know that my father's creations and his ideas were never recorded or heard by really anyone else unless they saw him play. So I really wanted to make it the mission of that year to highlight those drums and make sure that they were on everything that I was doing. Mm. Because I you know they deserve to be heard and to be known. He's put so much work into that. It was such a shame. Dad, no one's ever heard your stuff. That's so sweet. <laughs> Yeah, and the DTI recording that I did recently, the snare drum was also a gift from my friend John, who was my you know initial roommate in college. He is now an A&R at Pearl, and I officiated his wedding. Wow, shit. And as a thank you, he gave me a snare drum. So I wanted to use the dad kit and the John snare for the album, and I thought that was just using those things was very important to me. So I feel like time-wise, we should pivot into the anime stuff, but you've given me the perfect segue. Hell yes. Which is that your father has built this machine. Oh, no. And now (laughs) you have to pilot it, Emmett. Yes. I got in the robot, Ian. I did it. But I chose... I chose. I didn't have to be dragged into an underground clandestine bunker against my will (laughs) or knowledge or understanding. But I will say, going back to the very beginning of this conversation, honestly, the way that you described the difference in playing drums because it was a thing you were good at versus a thing that you wanted to do because you were passionate about it, to me, is a very Shinji Ikari split, you know? Right? Yeah. Or it's really, I went from being the pilot equivalent of Ray, who, in your words, very aptly is just punching the clock, Mm -hmm. to a Shinji or even like a Shinji Asuka meld. It's for the love of it. Right. For the deep rooted passion in myself to do this. I can't even turn it off at this point. I haven't been able to turn it off in 20 something years, you know, but. Right. Once you have that tap turned on or once you get switched on or whatever you want to say, like there's no off. It's just on either way. You switch the switch. 
Totally. So given that my other podcast, the Human Instrumentality podcast, is at least at the moment, it's all pre-recorded, so it's not receiving guests at the moment. But you hit me up about wanting to talk about Neon Genesis Evangelion. And since we have a habit of going long, clearly, I figure, fuck it. Let's just talk about Ava <laughs> to close this <laughs> podcast out. Oh, I love it, dude. Oh, I'm such uh, That's awesome. Hell yeah. So thank you. When did you start watching Ava? I remember distinctly the moment it was recommended to me. It was, I think, 2014. No, 15. It was a party, and it was our buddy Justin, who used to play in the band Tipwork. Shout out to Tipwork. Justin finds out I'm into anime, and he's like, dude, have you ever watched Neon Genesis Evangelion? I was like, what are all those words you just said? <laughs> no, I have, I have not watched the show. And he basically grabbed me by the shoulders and was like, you need to watch this. It will change everything. <laughs> I've been both people in that conversation, so I understand both sides quite well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, really hitting my anime stride at this point. Middle end of college, I had really transitioned into just an outright fan. Whereas before that, I was just kind of a curious, I really like animation. I really like the storytelling, but I'm not just like an outright anime guy. Mm -hmm. And then I started watching One Piece once I moved to New York, very steadily catching up to One Piece. Yeah. And then I had this conversation with Justin about Eva and he was like, you must. So I went to what is now known as WCO Stream, one of my most reliable anime sources, and watched Eva in its original English. And I was blown away, blown away just in every level. The occult themes, the sci-fi eye candy, the psychosexual tension, the, the ending, just the character development, the amount of just unrelenting darkness throughout. <laughs> Man, it was like I got a V8 engine block dropped on me. Mm -hmm. And the music! The music! The music is so good. Oh, wow. This is so interesting to hear because I feel like most of the people that I talk to are people that watched it relatively young. Not to say that fresh out of college is not young, but I feel like most of the people that I know that are hardcore Evangelion fans are people that watched it around the same age as the Ava pilots when they watched it. This is like a big theme in our podcast is the fact that Joseph and I are watching it as the same age as like the bridge crew and the commanding officers, which is a totally different experience compared to watching it as a kid. But you watched it sort of like in between that and it still resonated with you. Yeah, I was removed from the triangles. I got to be kind of a arbiter mm -hmm. observer character, which there's not re there's not really a character like that in the show. There's no one who's on the side kind of giving you the story, who's objective, who's not wholly invested in everything that's going on in one way or another. If I had to speculate, I would say that like the bridge crew are probably closer to 25 than they are to 30, but that's entirely speculative. But you're right. One of the things about the show is it does not have a Greek chorus in any sense. And there's no like King Kai kind of character mm -hmm. that Dragon Ball has or system of characters that are on some upper echelon looking down, giving us information and everyone is in the thick of it. No one has blinders removed. So yeah, not being in those specific age groups and having the triggers of those age groups on me, I was able to have maybe a unique look at it, watching it for the first time. So you were into it from Jump? 
Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. it has everything. Brilliant storytelling. Again, amazing, iconic imagery that you don't forget. The first time you see Unit 1, you don't have to remember what Unit 1 looks like. You see Unit 1 again, you know what it is. You know, you see an angel. Any of the angels mm-hmm. are all iconic images, especially the cube angel. Remiel. Yes. That's my favorite fight with all of Japan being powering this laser cannon. And I was already into the show. And then I saw that and I was like, a space shuttle shield. <laughs> like, holy God, this is amazing. Yeah, I think we talked about this in our podcast, but I feel like Ramiel is when you realize Ava is playing with a whole other set of aesthetic concepts. Like, okay, the first two monsters are recognizably monsterish, but then this geometric opera cube is floating towards you. It's like, what what are we even dealing with right now? Yeah, man. It was one of the first shows where I had that, um, like in Akira, there's these large coral pieces that just make everything so much more eerie and haunting and like closing in. But I hadn't seen Akira yet. So I had my first experience of that with Ava when these voices are the score and all this action is happening and very overwhelming and exhilarating. So I kind of want to open the floor to you, given that you've been listening to the podcast. I don't know. I feel like you've listened to now many hours of me talking about (laughs) Genesis 7 Gateway. So I kind of want to give the floor to you to respond in some way. Sure. I love the ending, which I know is, if not one of the most, the most controversial part of the show. Mm -hmm. And I think I fell in love with the show all over again at the end of it. And I was just so blown away by how much things change and just the direction it takes. There's the speculation about the studio kind of falling apart, so the show falls apart with it, and that I don't know how much you can cop to that. Not an entirely accurate portrayal of events, is what I will say. Right. But just knowing that there is some kind of collapse mirrored in the show, in the studio, I was fascinated by that and Mm -hmm. put me on the whole research wiki journey you know, and so after watching the show a few more times, I really connected with the ending and how powerful it is. What makes it so powerful to you? It's like one of Shinji's first, but his most prominent moment of agency. Mm-hmm. It's where he truly decides. It seems like the first time in the show when he really takes everything into his own hands. You know, I mean, he takes the world in his hands in a way because it's him deciding whether or not Third Impact happens. Yeah, I won't get into my particular interpretation because I want people to listen to the Human Instrumentality podcast and I have a very like galaxy brain understanding of the ending. (laughs) But you're right. Ultimately, the ending is about Shinji learning how to have agency over his own life. Yeah. Is that something you've it doesn't seem this way from the course of our conversation. It seems like you've had a very clear idea of what you want to do and how to move towards it in some respects. But do you feel like part of the reason that that resonated with you is a result of any kind of like of your own struggles about agency or about taking control of your own actions in that way? I think it definitely does. Maybe I wasn't having that resonance in a completely forward conscious way in that moment. But thinking about it, I don't see how it wouldn't do that with me. Because having true freedom is, I think, my ultimate goal of life. To be able to make a decision and to have it occur. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I want to take X path. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to X destination. It's part of my mission with music. You know, I'm going to set out to be a certain kind of drummer and insert myself into a certain kind of scene, move to a specific city. These are the steps I need to take to do that. I'm going to do that. Come hell or high water. I guess if the water gets high enough, I'll take a drink, like whatever. (laughs) But, you know, for as much as human beings don't have complete agency over our own lives, I've very, very highly valued what agency I do have. Now, I picked what high school I wanted to go to. I was able to pick what college I went to, and I set myself up for those choices. I picked the city I wanted to live in. Again, the kind of scene I wanted to be a part of. And so knowing and having the feeling that those choices are of my own volition and being able to realize them is hugely important to me. Mm -hmm. And so when I see a character who has been, as you've so beautifully outlined, misinformed and not given the opportunity to have their own take on the world, have that moment of justice, I think there's no way that I wouldn't be able to connect to him. Word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really beautiful. I I think about it a lot. I mean, I think this is like part of the split Mm. for me as someone who watched a lot of Evangelion as like someone who was Shinji's age for a long time. I saw myself in him, you know, like I was going through those same struggles to like find my own sense of self and like establish my own sense of worth in being alive and whatnot and take on that kind of mantle of having to make your own choices. But now as an adult, I can watch it and in the same way that you're describing be more rooting for the kid you know yes you do deserve to like take responsibility for yourself and to say that you deserve to be alive which is a fundamental battle that i think a lot of us have to go through at some point that i think the show does a really beautiful job of describing in this grandiescent psychedelic sci-fi way but it's ultimately a very human story about every day you have to wake up and be yourself Right. The ability to take your flag, proverbially, and plant it and say, I am here. Mm -hmm. This is what I am. This is what I'm about. Everyone, I don't want to speak for the entire human race, but I feel like everyone is searching for that kind of clarity, that kind of agency, that opportunity to just be whatever and whoever they envision in this life. And I think that's a reason why the show is so profoundly connective, And I think our three child characters are the gradations of that flag planting. You know, we have Ray, who is essentially just an empty vessel, who really doesn't have any agency because she has no will. Mm -hmm. And then on the other end, we have Asuka, who has almost like more will than is good for her. It's will in compensation of something else. It is over willfulness in order to cover for a certain lack of agency in another regard is the way that I interpret her character. Yeah, that she has so much childhood trauma and so many abandonment issues that there is, like you just said, this overblown personality that is trying to scream out to everyone around her, like, please look at me. And I think that is even something in the show that she says when she's, you know, calling out to her mom, mm-hmm. please look at me, please know me, see me. I am here. Right? Can't you see all the things that I am? Can't you see all that I'm doing, all that I've done? know me well i feel like a lot of it is also the way that she phrases it is like anti-negation you know it's like saying like don't look away from me don't ignore me don't leave me here right right so it's not necessarily in a positive 
explanation of what she's going through, but it's rather like, I know what it feels like to be abandoned. I know what it feels like to be ignored. Don't do that to me. It actually speaks to a certain degree of vulnerability and fear in her character that the rest of her character is built to hide and protect against. Yeah. Which ultimately is her undoing. It's she's not able to leave that shell, which is another theme of the characters overall is they can't get outside themselves. They're always in their own way. All of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if they could only just step out of that shadow, if they could only just move out of that encasing that they've put over themselves, all that armor, all that hedgehog. They could really make a human connection. They could really have the relationships that they need. They could find that justice, the healing, understanding, intimacy. It could all be there for them if they would only just take a step back from everything that they're projecting. But like it's to the medium of the show is that literally it's them getting inside of a giant suit of armor. You know, yes. So it's all about the way that we all put on these suits of armor, these AT fields, these barriers between us and the other person, because we're afraid of that gap to begin with, you know? Right. And I feel like that's one of the reasons that I'm kind of grateful just in the way that the timing worked out that I feel like the show is so resonant in this last year where there is this huge gap between people and there is this like lack of ability to reach out and have these normal social relationships with each other. Right. When I think of like our friendship, if the last year hadn't happened, we would have seen each other and would have hung out and would have probably had a lot of the conversations that we had over the last two hours just in person. Yeah, absolutely, man. But like that literally wouldn't have like it wouldn't it hasn't been possible. Like we had to create this structure in order to do it to some degree. Like, of course, we could have texted each other, had other sorts of conversations. But point being, yes, it's been a year where all of us have had to try and find ways to cross that absolute terror field. And just the fact that this show so cleanly speaks to this kind of moment in that way is like really kind of fascinating to me. And just to piggyback on that, after Second Impact, we lose nature, basically. Mm -hmm. We lose all of our connection to what is natural to humanity. And so when we're in the present Eva timeline, we have all these artificially created environments, all this completely man-made world. Mm -hmm. We don't really see any other natural world except in flashbacks or when they briefly go to Antarctica or whatever. But even then, Antarctica is not what we know. It's not as it should have been. So in the very parallel way, all of the natural humanity that we should have experienced over the past year, we have had to manufacture very consciously ways to reproduce that. Succulents in your bedroom and all of that kind of thing. Right. We all have our own like hot water penguins in one way or another, you know? Man, I love Pen Pen. <laughs> You know, what I said before, there's no character acting on a removed level. Pen Pen is the closest we get to just someone in the room raising an eyebrow mm -hmm. at everything, not saying anything, and just going into their room shaking their head. <laughs> it's like the one sensible roommate who is watching everyone else have a blowout and just being like, dude, I'm not even, I'm not even going there. <laughs> not even going there with you people you don't even deserve my clarity me as the only rational being a penguin i'm just gonna go into my fucking <laughs> fridge bedroom and chill <laughs> quite literally yes dude if that doesn't speak to the level of chaos that the show throws at us i don't know what does do you have any other like big points that you'd like to hit in the save a conversation 
I really enjoy the movies as well. I just watched them all for the first time, I think within quarantine. And what I like about them so much is that they are, in my view, the other choice. Mm -hmm. Yes. We get the show and it ends with Shinji's very positive, affirming, at first messy of an ending as the show has. That is the neat and tidy ending. Yes. Which should just tell you so much. If that is the bow on the story, what's the opposite? The opposite is End of Ava. There's <laughs> a giant ray head in a right. blood ocean with Shinji choking Asuka, but her still giving him another chance. Well, that's because Asuka's the better person of the two. But yeah, End of Ava, I watched that one at the end of watching oh, shit. the show itself. So I kind of see that as like part of the original text, quote unquote. And then there's the rebuilds, which I feel like are an entirely separate subject and are kind of made under different circumstances and made in a different decade and require a whole other realm of analysis to really crack. Hmm. So I actually view End of Ava to be like very much a part of, I'm not one of these people that says it's the real ending. I agree with you. I think that 25 and 26 are absolutely, if you read them the correct way, the perfect ending of the TV show. But End of Ava, I think, is a necessary counterbalance because of the way that it speaks to that exact degree of agency, right? Like if the show is ultimately about granting Shinji agency, then it's only right that we see both sides of that choice. Like once you have agency, that means that you have have the ability to make one choice or another. And so the show needs to show you what happens when you make one choice or another. Uh, wow. And yeah, well, what a choice he made. Yikes. I think the movies, if nothing else, are Anno redeeming Asuka's character. <laughs> if there is like nothing else to read into them, it's that Asuka gets her due. Asuka gets to actually be the badass she always imagined she would be. She actually doesn't turn into a frail girl and get kind of shunned and like completely dunked on for the end of the show the way that she does. Not that I think that they the writers were purposefully treating her negatively or anything like we're going to give Shinji all the glory and uh, we're going to just have to ask you're going down. Yeah, I, I, I cannot step on my co-host's toes because he's the designated Asuka lover of the podcast. And he's got a lot of things to say about End of Ava that I, I cannot comment upon. Suffice to say, if we're talking about End of Ava at this point, I feel like we need to wrap it up. Fair, fair enough. I just want to make one recommendation, though. Sure. Have you ever seen a show, Cashern Sins? Never heard of it. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. If you're on a isolation anime kick, okay. this is for you. It takes place in a far distant Earth. Humanity is almost completely gone. The planet is almost completely inhabited by robots. And so basically every character you see is a robot. And it is one of the most desolate, empty. Every landscape is completely unrecognizable. I've never seen anything like it in my life. The sound design of the fight scenes is incredible. And I've never had wind mm. be like a character before. Like there's so much wind and it is so integral to the way that you feel when you watch the thing. And you're just like, oh my God, I feel so alone out here. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Fuck yeah. I'll have to check that out. Please do send me the link. In the meantime, do you have anything that you'd like to send listeners of this episode towards? Anything that you want to plug in the immediate future? Keep your eyes peeled for new music. <laughs> I recorded a lot of music last year. So hopefully the Semaphore album will come out before the year's end. 
Hopefully the Detach the Islands album will come out before the year's end. I recorded a number of EPs uh, earlier in lockdown, including the Lamniforms album. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And just stay healthy out there. Stay smart. Stay safe. Call your friends. Fuck yeah. Make a conscious effort. Because we're still not back to normal. You know, we're still not in a place where the interactions between us are happening very naturally. We still have to, in a very conscious way, craft and purposefully have time with people, which is why I'm very appreciative of doing the podcast right now, because we are making space to just hang and talk and do what we would normally do if we were just out there in the world and randomly thrown together because we were in the same place at the same time, which I think a lot of us were shocked out of in quarantine. And how could you not take that for granted? That's just how life works. But suddenly life has those cogs removed and you have to on purpose be social, which is much more difficult. (laughs) You're telling me I'm really grateful for the, the way, I don't know. I feel like the fact that you were the first guest on this podcast means I can wax eloquent about it to some degree. But like, I'm really glad that like you helped launch this thing that has helped me sustain a lot of social interactions with people that I otherwise over the last year really would not have been able to do. And so I don't know, I just had my first shot pretty recently. I'm on the path to vaccination and I feel like coming full circle talking to you again over a year later. I don't know. It feels like it feels cool to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm like psyched about it. So. Oh, that's awesome, man. Thank you so much. You know, I've been following the podcast as well and your other material and i've just been a big fan dude your conversations are always very thoroughly researched and very insightful and i think you bring the best out of your guests and you get them to talk in a way that doesn't feel like a lot of other interviews can where it is very by the numbers we're just going down a list of stuff and the guest feels like it's a bit robotic but people seem to just open up and flow very naturally to what you bring them so i'm very appreciative of that as a fan and a, as a listener and as a fan of a lot of the people you're interviewing as well i'm like oh there's an interview with danny or sid or, or i'm like i'm tuning in and i get to hear them in a way that i think is how I would hear them as an objective outsider, which is really, really cool. And I appreciate that a lot. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I appreciate you helping launch this thing, coming back around to it, being a listener and a guest. Couldn't ask for a better full circle partner in this dance of Lamniforms Radio. So (laughs) thank you. With that, I think we got to close it off. Emmett, thank you so much for this episode. You're so welcome, Ian. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Emmett, for joining me. I've included the links to the Emmett Seglia Extended Universe of Bands in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a good rating or review, or send it to a friend that you think would enjoy it as well. You can reach me at lamniformsband at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Until next time. <laughs>